Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to the series I'm doing on the Jeffrey McDonald murder case trials and infamous book, Fatal Vision. I think we left off preparing for another trial, this time in civilian and not military court. Before I get started, I just want to say thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer podcast. I love doing this podcast. So if you don't mind, go check out my social medias. That's going to be Storytime Slayer for Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. And then it's story underscore time underscore slayer for my Instagram. Leave me a five-star review wherever you listen and let's jump in. Oh, don't forget. So this is a multi-part series. And if you subscribe now, you can get access to all the parts at once to binge listen. Plus, after you become a subscriber, you will get a bonus episode every month. Okay, seriously, though, we're getting started right now. So at this point in the Jeffrey McDonald story, a few things sort of happen at the same time. While Jeff prepares to go to court, he is still actively looking to have a book written about what he's gone through, what he's currently going through, and he would like to involve his upcoming trial. So he crossed paths with a man named Joe McGinnis. Joe McGinnis was a famous writer, and at one point, he was one of the youngest best-selling authors in America. He wrote a book called The Selling of the President, And to write this book, he infiltrated the Nixon campaign administration and hit it off really well with them. They knew he'd been writing a story about the election and campaign, and they were okay with that until the book came out and it painted Nixon in a negative light along with all his campaign managers and associates. Of course, many questioned Joe's integrity, but it didn't really matter because the book was a major success. So... Fast forward years later, Joe meets Jeff in 1979, and Joe, the writer, really likes Jeff. They become fast friends, and Joe genuinely believed in Jeff's innocence and agreed to write a book from an inside look at the defense during Jeff's upcoming trial. The conditions Joe set forth were that he would live with Jeff during the trial, and the book would reflect the truth, whatever that may be. Joe would get complete access to everything. So the two men reached a financial agreement. Jeff would be awarded one third of the book proceeds if Joe was granted full access to Jeff's life and his legal battles. So a contract is put into place and Joe put in the contract that Jeff would have no creative control of the book and he cannot sue Joe. On that condition, Jeff added, quote, so long as the central integrity of my life story is maintained, end quote. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a very awkward agreement. It seems like neither of the men really trust in Jeff's innocence from the very beginning of this book deal. Weird. But a deal's a deal. So this is how the book Fatal Vision came to be, a book that is still of heavy debate in journalism classes all over the country. Books have literally been written about this book, Fatal Vision. There's a podcast dedicated to just this book and Joe McGinnis's journalistic integrity. I will circle back to this, but I got to tell you about the trials and Joe's big revelation for you to fully grasp the issues with this book situation and the possible motive for why Jeff killed his family. So Jeff, his legal team, and Joe need to go to trial. They rent out a frat house in North Carolina July of 1979 when the trial started. Joe, Jeff, Jeff's entire legal team, and like one or two frat members who didn't actually leave for the summer that year took up residency in this house. 
They decided to rent a frat house because they thought they'd have more privacy. All through the trial and preparation, Joe still adamantly believed in Jeff's innocence, and the two became like best friends. They ran together, drank beer together, watched TV together. They're having dinner. They're chilling. It's a good time. Just making the best of Jeff's muddy situation, it seemed like. The trial started July 16th, 1979. Jeff was represented by Bernie Siegel and Wade Smith. James Blackburn and Brian Murdaugh were the state prosecutors. Let me just go ahead and say, holy shit, there was serious tension and animosity between the prosecutors and the defense. And Siegel, Jeff's defense attorney, is a joke of a lawyer. He cannot keep his cool or composure to save his life. He's very aggressive, combative, sarcastic. I mean, the man has no poker face. So the prosecution always goes first. They presented all the evidence that I laid out in episodes one and two, physical and circumstantial. So the judge ends up not letting any of the psychologist testimony into court. Fortunately, though, the prosecution had much more damning evidence than some psychologist. Of all the physical evidence, in my opinion, the blood stains on Jeff's shirt not only had the presence of Kim's blood, but there was also blood stains belonging to Colette that were in place on the shirt before it had been ripped. So if you reassembled the torn shirt, it looked to have had, like I said, blood splatter that was pre-existing to it being torn. On top of that, a very convincing experiment had been conducted by refolding the shirt the way it had been found on Colette's chest the night of the murders. They copied it as best they could by looking at photographs of the crime scene, and it actually showed that the 48 holes on the pajama top perfectly aligned with the 21 stab wounds Colette had to her body. It was likely the shirt was stabbed by the ice pick across Colette's chest and abdomen. The jury went on a field trip to the actual crime scene during the trials. I can hardly believe that the military actually preserved the McDonald's residency all those years. That is amazing to me. That is nine years. Immediately after the jury leaves the crime scene, they go to court and they hear a recording of Jeff recanting the events of February 17. And the jury found Jeff's argumentative nature and emotionless tone to be totally damning to his defense. There's also the issue of Jeff's affair. On one hand, Jeff would act like he would never do something to hurt his family. He adores his family. He loves his wife deeply. And yet he's a serial cheater. Something the prosecution had on their side for this trial also was Colette's parents. Fred had now made it his life's mission to get Jeff convicted for the murders of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen. Not only did Freddie point out inconsistencies with what Jeff was saying in the crime scene, he also pointed out inconsistencies in Jeff's version of things, even little things like Jeff had told Colette he was drafted into the army when in fact Jeff says that he signed up for the army. So just really little things like that to speak to Jeff's character. However, Jeff's defense still had the argument that Jeff seemed to have no motive or reason to kill his family, and prosecutors couldn't even definitively or convincingly pin down why Jeff would do this. The defense had other really good points as well. The crime lacked motive, Jeff had no history of violence, plus the CID seriously effed up this investigation and the evidence in this case. I mean, they seriously whiffed that, y'all. They whiffed that. The defense also had a parade of character witnesses made up of friends, colleagues, and loved ones. But the defense, I think, relied on the most was their theory that somebody else did this crime. And you've heard her name before. Helena. 
The defense maintained Helena and three other acid-loving hippies broke into the McDonald home and killed Colette and the children. Helena was tracked down, and it was the same old Helena, only difference is she was fat and had her hair dyed black. In my opinion, she ended up being a whole lot less of a help to the defense, though. So despite the fact that Helena had passively, aggressively implicated herself in the murder several times throughout the last nine years to police and friends and family, when she was called to trial, she adamantly said that she had not actually been involved. She admitted that she had a troubled life and that the only reason she'd ever made police think that she knew something was in hopes for something in return. Remember, Helena had a long history of being a police informant. On the stand, Jeff's defense is practically begging Helena to admit that she did this crime. He even explains to her in court that she would have no legal repercussions because this was beyond the statute of limitations. The judge even allowed Jeff's defense to talk to Helena alone for one hour. However, she still refuted and maintained on the stand that she did not know what she was doing the night of the murders because she was under the heavy influence of drugs and that she did not think she participated in the McDonald family murders and all the implications she'd made in the past about her involvement were just lies. Something Joe McGinnis points out in his book, Fatal Vision, what first made him suspicious of Jeff was that when Helena took the stand in Jeff's trial, Jeff had literally no emotional response whatsoever to seeing her. He didn't cry. He didn't seem enraged. He didn't seem upset. It's like Jeff was just sitting and watching a commercial on TV. No emotional response to seeing Helena. So Jeff takes the stand in his own defense, always risky, and he was extremely sarcastic, defensive, and downright snarky, which is never a good look for a defendant. They questioned Jeff about every inconsistency between his story and the evidence, and his answers were always the same. I don't know. I don't know. Jeff could in no way come up with plausible explanations for things like a lack of blood in the living room, his shirt fibers all over the house, except in the living room, how Kim's blood splatter was in his room, why Kim's urine was on his bed and not Kristen's, like he could not explain away anything. But the most damning thing the prosecution had was why would Jeff's family be murdered in such a heinous way and him be left blacked out on the floor with very little injury in comparison as four hippies staged the crime? And how did these hippies leave no sign of themselves anywhere? So Jeff's trial wraps up in August of 1979, and after less than seven hours of deliberation, the jury comes back with a guilty verdict. Jeff was ultimately found guilty for two counts of second-degree murder of Colette and Kimberly and first-degree murder of Kristen. Jeff's mom ran out of the courtroom wailing, and you could hear her wailing during sentencing. Jeff stood displaying absolutely no emotion while the judge sentenced him three life sentences to be served consecutively in federal prison. So consecutively means back to back. You finish one, you start the next. You finish that one, you start the third. So Jeff is sent off to prison. He is sent to the Federal Corrections Institute on Terminal Island in the state of California. And of course, he immediately starts working on appeals. In the meantime, Joe, the man writing the book for Jeff, feels really bad for Jeff and was initially upset that Jeff had even been found guilty or incarcerated. 
People who knew Jeff so believed in his innocence and the ability that he'd overturn his conviction that they were actually making payments on his condo and his car while he was incarcerated. So his life is literally just sitting there waiting for him. Jeff did not live in a one-bedroom apartment with an old Honda, you guys. After the murders had happened, he moved to California and rebuilt his life. He lived in like a 300 something thousand dollar Oceanside condo and drove a Maserati. Meanwhile, Joe needed to work on the book and to pay Jeff a visit in California and do some research. So Jeff tells Joe that he can stay in his condo while visiting California to do his book research. So Joe does. He goes and stays at Jeff's home for a week, and he would drive to interview Jeff every day in prison. Joe found out that he couldn't get enough coverage um, for what he needed by just taking pen and paper notes during his visitation hour. So he smuggles in a tape recorder and some tapes. And what Joe would do is he would write down a list of questions for Jeff to answer. And seeing how Jeff had all the time in the world to fully explain everything in his downtime, Jeff would record his answers on this voice recording and then he would mail them to Joe. Eventually, Joe did get it legally allowed to have the recorders and tapes. He only had to smuggle them at first. Joe and his wife become obsessed with the tapes that Jeff send them. And Joe keeps pushing Jeff to go deeper and talk about not just the murders, but all the good, bad, and ugly parts of his life. He pushes Jeff to be transparent and not to be afraid to tell him anything it only Joe was going to hear the tapes and he said that he felt it was really important to really know Jeff through and through and completely understand the dynamics of Jeff's life and his relationship with Colette as part of his research so Jeff does what Joe says he goes deeper and he tells a lot of unflattering details about his life along with just real things that he thought for instance he insinuated that oh yeah Colette was beautiful and he loved her but You know, her body wasn't the best. She didn't have the longest legs. Just really weird things. Jeff also talked in depth about his sex life with other women. And he just said a lot of things that would turn people off from liking him. I think that's exactly what it did for Joe and Joe's wife. They became extremely disgusted with Jeff. However, Joe needed Jeff to go deeper and deeper. So as a reward for going deeper, like Joe asked him to and exposing his true self, Joe cut Jeff a check from the first part of the book advance. And this is how the relationship would continue. Joe would reward Jeff for word vomiting all the good, bad, and ugly parts of his life by paying him one third of the proceeds he was receiving for each part of the book that he finished and gave to his publishers. Then Joe hit the writer's jackpot. During the week Joe stayed at Jeff's house, he found a plethora of legal documents pertaining to the case, as well as some journals Jeff had written. Jeff wrote these journals per the request of his first legal defense team. This is in 1970 for the Article 23 hearing, right after the murders. In these journals, Joe finds a complete outline of the events leading up to the murders, a full account Jeff had written out per the request of his legal team. The legal team had wanted to see if there was anything they needed to anticipate being a potential issue during the trial. There was, in fact, something that had been overlooked and was a potential issue. And Jeff's accounts of events and things leading up to the break in and the murders, it was like a timeline, right? Like a play-by-play. So Jeff wrote right off the bat, in the three to four weeks prior to the murders, he'd been trying to lose weight and get into better shape. In three to four weeks, he'd lost 12 to 15 pounds. 
To aid in his weight loss, he'd taken three to five Escatrol. He doesn't say if he took three to five a day, only three to five over the entire three to four week period. He only says that he took three to five Escatrol. Don't worry, I will circle back and tell you all about Escatrol if you don't know. So the journal continues to say everything Jeff did within the 24 hours leading up to his family's attack. He says he worked a 24-hour shift the day prior, a full eight-hour shift at the office February 16th. Then he went and played basketball after work, took the kids to feed the pony, sat down to have dinner around 545, and very possibly could have maybe taken a diet pill. That is what he wrote. He says he took it before dinner because he would eat less and not snack late at night. Jeff wrote he did not disclose that he had taken Escatrol to the hospital personnel or military police and said if traces of it did come back in his urine, it was because he must have taken some before dinner. So here's the thing. Jeff's told to write down his thoughts and what happened leading up to February 17th and anything that could potentially be an issue in his trial. Jeff sure is spending a lot of time rationalizing how maybe he would have taken a diet pill or there could have been a diet pill in his system. It almost seems like Jeff is paranoid about somebody finding Escatrol in his system. But that is not even where the ball gets rolling. Joe researches Escatrol, and I'm sure he'd heard of it before because it was a super popular diet pill between the 60s and 70s. I read somewhere that it was in the top 200 drugs prescribed at one point in time, but it was taken off the market in 1981 because it was not effective. It was no good. It was an amphetamine mixed with a tranquilizer. The side effects proved to be very dangerous. One of the most dangerous side effects was it could potentially send people into a temporary rage fuel psychosis, especially if they'd experienced lack of sleep, physical exhaustion, or stress. Jeff was undergoing all three. The catch, though, is how much did Jeff take? Because three to five total in the span of three to four weeks isn't enough to cause a significant drop in weight or psychosis. However, taking large doses of three to five at a time or in a day throughout the three to four week span could account for the weight loss. Remember, Joe made the point that Jeff was not your typical diet pill patient. He was active. He works out regularly. He's already in really good shape. It would not be super easy to lose 12 to 15 pounds if you were Jeff, unless you were taking something like Escatrol. And it was unlikely Jeff had only taken three to five in total in the three to four weeks. Joe was leaning more towards thinking that Jeff was taking three to five at a time and that would account for his paranoia about it being in his system after the murders. Not to mention, I mean, the man worked 32 hours, played a basketball game, took his kids to go feed a pony, stayed up all night reading, doing dishes. Come on. I mean, it does kind of seem like he probably took a pretty big dose of Escatrol or had been taking several over the last couple days leading up to the murders. That is all speculation, though. So I was wondering, and I'm sure you're wondering also, did the hospital do a urine analysis on Jeff that picked up traces of Escatrol? Joe explained in his book, Fatal Vision, that they did do a urine analysis at the hospital, but apparently it wouldn't have looked for the ingredients in Escatrol because drugs like that were so relatively new and deemed popular and safe that the ingredients were not flagged as potentially dangerous substances in 1970 like they are today. Plus, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think the hospital had the equipment or facilities to test for that specific substance at the time of the murders. Like, maybe they weren't state of the art. I'm not really sure why, but no, 
they didn't test for the ingredients in Escatrol. Joe is shocked. And now he for sure thinks that Jeff did it. Joe thinks this is the motive as to why Jeff McDonald snapped and killed his family. So this is where Joe's journalistic integrity is questioned significantly. Rather than just tell Jeff, hey, I found these questionable journal entries where you stated that you had taken Escatrol. I've done my research and I think maybe you'd gone into a fueled rage psychosis and killed your family. Joe just kept stringing Jeff along. In fact, he would encourage Jeff when Jeff felt discouraged about his guilty verdict. And he would try and get Jeff to spill more of his heart out onto these recorded tapes so that he could review them for his book. Joe basically pretended to sympathize for Jeff. So Jeff had absolutely no way of knowing Joe thought he was guilty. The reality is the book went from the perspective of Joe thinking Jeff is innocent to now painting him as guilty. When Jeff would ask Joe how the book was coming along or for any completed pieces of the book, Joe would give him the runaround. He knew Jeff would be displeased, so Joe just slowly created space between himself and Jeff. Meanwhile, something really crazy happens. Jeff files an appeal in 1980, and the appeal was for the grounds that Jeff had a right to a speedy trial, and the prosecution did not grant him that right. The Supreme Court actually accepted the appeal, and Jeff gets out of prison August of 1980 on a sort of parole while the Supreme Court comes to a decision on his case. Jeff literally goes back to his house, he's driving his car, he goes back to his old job and literally picks up where his life left off, only having to visit his parole officer every week. And don't you worry, he still has a girlfriend, someone actually wants to date him. That is insane to me, they even get engaged. In the meantime, Joe is rapidly trying to finish his book. Jeff starts to get impatient, wanting to know what Jeff is writing. Jeff wants to know how Joe is making him look and is super curious. How will it look for him if the book is published while he is still undergoing his legal process out on an appeal? Jeff kind of wants Joe to put the book on pause. Um, but here's the deal. Joe is going broke. Okay. The book has taken too long. He needs to release it. If nothing else for damn grocery money. So Joe just tells Jeff flat out, look, it's my book. I'm finishing it as soon as possible because I financially cannot hold out any longer. We can always amend the ending to the book if something else comes out of your legal troubles, but I can't wait. I cannot wait any longer. Jeff, of course, has no way of knowing that Joe was questioning the journal entries. He knew about the Escatrol. Jeff just had to accept and hope that Joe would make him look innocent and give him a pre-released copy of the book at the very least. In the meantime, Jeff has to hire a new defense team and focus on his legal issues. Which is exactly what he does. While out on bail awaiting the Supreme Court's decision, Jeff hires a new defense team and they hire a private investigator to try and find the quote unquote real killers. To do so, the PI puts an ad in the newspaper with Jeff's description of the four intruders from February 17, 1970, asking if anyone had any information or had remembered seeing those four hippies in 1970. Wow. Of course, all sorts of people come out of the woodwork, but on this tip line, a guy named Greg Mitchell keeps being mentioned. So the PI investigated. Apparently, Greg was doing what Helena had been doing. He just kept insinuating that he'd partaken in the McDonald's murders to people over the last nine years. He was also a really strange guy with a history of instability and drug use, just like Helena, and he was more likely to confess, so to speak, while under the influence of drugs and alcohol. 
Other than affidavits claiming Greg's confessions, there's nothing else to substantiate these claims, just like there wasn't anything to substantiate Helena's claims. No physical evidence could be tied to Greg from the crime scene, and Greg had actually passed a polygraph exam years ago claiming his innocence in 1971, despite whatever confessions he'd made after. Greg, though, had died later in 1982, and he seemed to be a dead end for the PI and for police, despite his supposed, quote unquote, confessions. Of course, the PI hunt Helena down again, and they find her in some shitty place. She's in very bad health and practically permafried from long-term drug use. But guess what she says? She tells this private investigator that she was a part of the McDonald murders, that she was a member of a satanic cult, and she thinks she may have been there the night the McDonald family was murdered in the home. Like, what the hell is wrong with this lady? She gives another confession and agrees to take a polygraph, which, by the way, she actually passes the polygraph, but... A lot of people think due to her heavy drug use and mental instability that she'd actually convinced herself she may have been there the night Colette and the children were murdered. Helena even does an interview for 60 minutes claiming Jeff was innocent and that she was there the night of the murders. So that's what the PI drudged up for Jeff's legal defense while he's waiting on the Supreme Court's appeal. Don't forget, though, there is absolutely no evidence to back up that anyone was in the home other than the McDonald family. It's really hard to believe that a gang of hippies did this, even with Helena confessing and them tracking down this Greg Mitchell guy, who, by the way, was Helena's boyfriend at the time the McDonald family was murdered. Crazy. This is crazy. However, Helena had actually died a year following her second confession. She died from pneumonia and cirrhosis of the liver due to heavy drinking and left behind a son who was just an infant. A lot of people think maybe because she was really sick and about to have a child, that's why she had done this confession in hopes that she would gain something from it. And she was likely paid for her 60 minutes interview, which she probably really needed the money. It doesn't really matter, though, because the Supreme Court ultimately ruled against Jeff's appeal anyway, and he has to return to prison to finish out his three consecutive life sentences in August of 1982. So... In the meantime, here is where things took a turn for the worse between Joe and Jeff. Despite Joe telling Jeff the recordings were only going to be heard by him, he actually quotes several minutes of Jeff's recordings throughout his book, Fatal Vision, and they do not paint Jeff in the most flattering light. Not to mention, Joe mentions the Escatrol in Jeff's journal and basically outlines all the evidence that he compiled against Jeff and makes Jeff sound guilty as hell in this book. Meanwhile, he would not give Jeff a pre-released copy. Jeff has no idea, and once he goes back to prison, he secures an interview with 60 Minutes from inside prison. His idea is that he's going to tell the public his legal team has drummed up new evidence and he's working towards getting another trial. The interview is prior to the book release, and Jeff had actually planned to mention the book and hype it up to get people to buy it. But here's what Jeff wasn't expecting. Joe, who'd adamantly refused to give Jeff a pre-released copy of the book, instead gave 60-minute interviewers a pre-released copy of the book before Jeff's prison interview. So they sit down with Jeff. They're interviewing him. He's like, you know, 
pretty optimistic, seems happy to be there, and then the bomb drops. The interviewer starts asking Jeff questions about negative things in the book, specifically surrounding Joe's theory on Escatrol and how it was potentially the motive behind the murders. And this is how Jeff finds out that Joe thought he was guilty and had written this book to sound like Jeff was guilty, even presenting evidence for motive that no one had even known about. You guys, the book Fatal Vision is really good, by the way. It's one of my favorite true crime books by far. As if Jeff could not fuck himself any harder, after the 60 Minutes interview and the release of Fatal Vision, a book Jeff wanted written about his case so bad, it becomes a bestseller in 1984, and then the book is made into a two-part miniseries for CBS, and it is played on the CBS television station over and over and over. Jeff was infuriated. He'd still been claiming his innocence and trying to get a new case, but things now seemed pretty much done for Jeff McDonald. Tune in to the final episode on the Jeffrey McDonald case. He actually does get a new trial and finds another surprise witness. If you didn't subscribe, I will talk to you next week about the last chapter of the Jeffrey McDonald case. Bye.